Let's now get here the public reading of the word. Our passage today is Psalm chapter 23. Hear now the reading of God's word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me now in a time of prayer. Most gracious and wonderful Father, we come to you now, especially during this time of such uncertainty and fear. We look to you to be the anchor of our soul and the sure footing of our very lives. Lord, in this moment of chaos and confusion, it's so easy for us to fall into a certain mindset of fear and worry. But Father, we pray against that by the power of your Spirit and by the assurance of your promise. Lord, let us look to you as we sit at your feet now, as you speak to us through your word, so that it would bring life and that it would give us hope. Father, we ask that you would help us to remember that you are a God who is good, you are a God who is all-powerful, and you are a God who is for us, your very people. We pray that you will now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let me first start off the bat by saying that this is the weirdest introduction to a sermon that I've ever done in my career as a preacher. It goes without saying that never in a million years did I ever imagine that I would be preaching to you guys the way that I am right now. And yet, when we remember the circumstances that brought us into this situation, I think it's fair to say that you and I live in a world that's ruled by fear. Fear. You know that word, don't you? And yet I wonder if you really understand what it means. And just so that we can be on the same page, hear this quote of how one author by the name of Dan Allender, how he defines fear in this quotation. Listen to what he says. Quote, Different people fear different things with different levels of intensity, but all of us fear what we cannot control. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish, end quote. According to this author, all of us are afraid of things that we cannot control. Oh, I don't know, like a global pandemic? <laughs> and the question is that as followers of Christ, how do we respond when we're confronted with moments of fear like we are right now? Well, I can think of no better text to look to than the one that we are today, Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in all of the Psalter. No doubt, growing up, you would have heard this passage of scripture recited in movies, television shows that you have seen. Why? Well, because it's the classic text that's most often used either at funerals or bedsides of those who are ready to transition to death. And I think it is so fitting, therefore, to look at this passage because here we're going to see how God is going to equip us to face the greatest fear of all, the fear of death. To where if we're able to extract the principles of overcoming the fear of death, we can overcome the fear of anything else that this world has to throw at us. So, with that in mind, three things I want to share with you in today's message. 
First, we're going to talk about a world filled with shadows. Then we're going to talk about the testimony of a king. And then we're going to end it with the fear we will never face. A world filled with shadows, the testimony of a king, and the fear we will never face. Let's begin with the first point, a world filled with shadows. You know, if you've been following social media and the news lately, I think it's easy to say that it just seems like things are particularly crazy here and now like they've never been before. With the pervasive coverage that we've been getting in the media about the whole virus and all the negative outflow that came out of it, the stock market crashing, international tensions, things shutting down, entire cities going under, it's easy to come to the conclusion that we're living in times that are unusually mad. But if you actually take a look at our passage today, the author of this psalm, King David himself, describes the world in a way that all of us would describe the world right now. How is he describing the world? Read again verse 4. The valley of the shadow of death. Now, as poetic and as beautiful as that may sound, David is not trying to be beautiful, and he's not trying to be poetic. Far from it. You see, for David, death is not some natural, beautiful transition that everyone should go through and therefore celebrate like it's the circle of life that you see in The Lion King. No, just the opposite. Death is the most atrocious, disgusting, degrading thing we could ever go through, and he's trying to convey that with this statement of the shadows of death. Let me explain. If you ever encounter a shadow or ever experience a shadow coming over you, it's never as harmful as a thing it's shadowing. For example, if you're walking down the road and the shadow of a Mack truck comes over you, it does not do any damage whatsoever like it would if the actual Mack truck comes over you. Shadows are harmless, right? Unless, of course, you're talking about death shadow. Because David is telling us that death is so atrocious, so disgusting, so degrading, so dangerous, that even its shadow can endanger us in our souls and in our minds. Consider this quote from the great London preacher Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, quote, Death is terrible, and the very shadow of it is cold and chill and freeze to the marrow. I have stood under rocks which have not merely cooled me, but have cast a horrible damp chill, as though the embrace of death had been about me and its cold within me. One hastens to escape from such a deadly shade which has tended to strike you with fever. And such, it seems to me, is the shade cast by the wings of death, when the man feels that he is under such trouble that he cannot live and would not even wish to do so if he could. The joy of life has been like the sun under an eclipse, and in the chill, dark, damp shade of a terrible sorrow, the man has cowered down and beneath the icy touch of doubt has shivered, has felt fevered and frightened, and has been as one out of his mind. End quote. The shadows of death are things in life that may not actually physically kill you, but they are things that are just so overwhelming and so horrific that it seems just as bad as death or possibly even worse. Some examples, a parent watching helplessly their child slowly dying from an illness to which there is no cure. Or finding out that your loved one was randomly and viciously attacked by some dangerous stranger in the city somewhere. The shadows of death are those moments in life where essentially our worst nightmares are coming true. And when we find ourselves in that kind of situation, what's the first thing that's taken away from us? Do you know what it is? It's rest. A restful spirit. I mean, think about it. Think about the last time that you were filled with worry and anxiety and dread, all manifestations of fear. What happens? You can't sleep. 
As dead tired as you may be, and as much as you wish you could sleep, you cannot sleep because the baseline prerequisite of settleness and peace is not possible because you're so amped up, you're so on ready mode that you cannot be at peace and therefore you cannot sleep. But look at what David says in verse 2 about the situation he finds himself in. He says this, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. Here David says something very astounding. He tells us that even though he is currently in a situation that is so dreadful, that is truly a shadow of death moment, some way, somehow, he's able to be at peace. He's able to rest. And so the question is, how in the world is David able to have such peace within when he's surrounded by so much chaos without? The answer leads me to my next point, the testimony of a king. You know, one of the most interesting things that we see David doing in our passage is the way that he describes God. For how does he describe him? Again, verse 1, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. Isn't that interesting? David uses the symbolic image of a shepherd to describe God. And by implication, he is referring to himself as what? A sheep. A sheep. Now, in order to understand the significance of the symbolism of the sheep and the shepherd, you have to know a little bit of background. So let's quickly do that by first focusing on the sheep. There are two things, two main characteristics that the Bible routinely tells us about sheep. The first characteristic is that by nature, they are defenseless animals. Unlike wolves, unlike stray dogs, whenever a sheep is threatened, they don't growl, they don't run away, they don't even attack. Do you know what they do? They just give up. It's like they resign themselves to their fate. You know, my wife, many years ago, was on the mission field for over a year, serving with a missionary on a Native American uh, Indian reservation in New Mexico. And one of the things that she had to do was to slaughter sheep with the short-term missionaries that came as part of a reenactment of the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. And she would always tell me how shocked she was to where the sheep would know they're about to die. They know they're going to be killed. And what do they do? Nothing. Nothing at all. They just passively accept their fate and then they just die. Because it confirms what Scripture tells us about sheep, that by nature they are such defenseless animals. The second characteristic of sheep that we see in Scripture is that they're really not capable of caring for themselves. One of the things that is so unusual about their behavior is that sheep will go to an area that's very well resourced, abundant grass, tons of water, and they will consume all of that. But once all of it is gone, do they move forward trying to find greener pastures, trying to find more abundant water? No. If no one is there to lead them, they will just stay there and literally starve to death. That's what they are like. Now, when you combine these two characteristics, David is making an astounding claim about himself and really of all of humanity. And you know what that claim is? He's saying that you and I are utterly incapable people. We're incapable creatures. Now, I know as New Yorkers that can really grind up against us and really offend us. Us? Incompetent? Hello? We're here in New York, the most difficult city to ever live and thrive in, and here we are living and thriving, so how can you say we're incompetent? But please, don't take offense, and don't miss uh, David's point, because what he's essentially saying is that when comparing to the shadows of death moments, the moments that terrify us, kind of like the situation that we're in, 
He's saying it doesn't matter what your pedigree is, it doesn't matter what your competency is, what your skill level is, in comparison to the shadow of death moments, the moments of chaos, you and I are utterly incapable. And I tell you folks, there is no one who has more credibility to make such a claim than David himself. Because if you ever read his story and scripture, you would know that this is one resourceful and resilient dude. This is a man who with his bare hands was able to kill wild animals like lions and bears. This is a man who was able to fight against tens of thousands of well-trained soldiers, excuse me, and lift up his kingdom to a level of economic and social prosperity that no other king before and really no other king after him was able to achieve. David was a resilient and a resourceful person. And yet, with all that resiliency, with all that resourcefulness, even he knew in his life with what happened to him, he was no match for all the shadows of death moments that invaded and enveloped his life. A couple of examples. When he was a young man, he had a person who was obsessed with getting him out of the picture, his rival, a man by the name of Saul, who happened to be his own father-in-law. Later on in his life, one of his own daughters was brutally sexually assaulted by someone who was none other than his own son. That's right, it was an incestuous assault. And then, of course, there was a situation where his other son, a man by the name of Absalom, tried to do a coup d'etat against his own father, stabbing him in the back, trying to take the kingdom away from David to where he had no choice but to resist that ended up killing his own son, a trauma to which he never fully recovered. As powerful and as resourceful as David was, he could not avoid and he could not overcome the shadow of death moments in his life. For all intents and purpose, he was as helpless as a sheep. And yet, here is what is so amazing. David says that even though he is as helpless as a sheep when it comes to living in this dark, shadowy world, he's able to have rest. He's able to have peace the way a sheep would have peace by green pastures and streams of living water. How is that possible? Again, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Here, David tells us that even though he is like sheep when it comes to the dark, shadowy moments of life, he's at peace because why? God is his shepherd. And notice how he describes how God shepherds him. God shepherds David by what? Using a rod and a staff. Now, in order to understand the significance of these two items that he names, you have to know a little background. See, shepherds back then, when they shepherded their sheep, they used two instruments. They used a rod, which was essentially like a boomerang that was designed to kill predatory animals that would attempt to devour the sheep. And then the shepherd also had his staff, a long stick with a little hook at the end that was intended to make sure sheep wouldn't veer off from the path that he was leading them. And here's the thing that you need to understand about these shepherding tools. These were tools used by the shepherd when he led his sheep to go somewhere. In other words, these were tools of mobility. These were tools for a journey, for a quest. And by referencing these tools, David is trying to help us understand a mindset that we need to have when we're confronted with situations that terrify us, situations that we feel like where we have no control. Let me explain what I mean. You know, psychologists tell us that people who struggle with over-controlling 
fear in their lives is because of this condition known as pervasiveness. And what pervasiveness basically means is that you feel like you're stuck in a situation that terrifies you and you don't see any way out. That it's going to be a pervasive thing, hence why it's called pervasiveness. Everywhere you turn, it's just going to be the same situation. And as a result, it leads to another psychological condition known as permanence to where you feel like you're going to be permanently stuck in this moment, in this circumstance that scares you so much. So for example, if you're someone who is terrified of never finding someone, you're going to feel like you're permanently going to be single, never meeting someone who you could live happily ever after with. If you're one of those people who feels like that you can never find a job or that you can't stay in a job that you love, you have this fear of never being able to have a stabilizing career. Fear is able to have the power that it does over us because we cannot see a future that's any different than the current crisis we see ourselves in. Consider these words from Christian psychologist Ed Welch when he says the following. A visionary is someone who looks ahead and envisions the trajectory of a church, business, or individual life. Visionaries tend to be optimistic and are always confident. Worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. An experienced worrier can go for days leapfrogging from the past to the future and back again, never landing in the present. When they travel into the future with the imagination, they see it in high-definition detail. Before they go for a routine physical, they can hear the doctor pronouncing the dire diagnosis. They see the twisted metal of the imagined car accident when their spouse leaves for work. They watch themselves living on the streets after they fail a biology test and they haven't even taken it yet. End quote. Fear makes us feel like we are permanently and pervasively stuck in a terrifying situation to where we don't imagine ourselves of ever coming out of it and thereby leaving us in a hopeless state of mind that says, I am forever stuck. But David is trying to encourage us by saying, no, that is not true. That is not true of your God. That is not true of my God because our God is a shepherd because he shepherds us with his rod and his staff. You see, David is trying to tell us something very, very profound. He's trying to tell us that even though that you can't see it right now, even though you can't even imagine it right now, God is leading you through and therefore he is leading you out of the current crisis and circumstance you find yourself in. And again, there is no one who is more credible who can convince us this is true than David himself because if you continue to read his story, you would know that God consistently always takes him out of whatever crisis he finds himself in. And as a result, he can therefore build his faith muscles and say what he does in verse 5. What does he say? Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Notice how he uses the future tense. David has chosen to actively decide to trust God and Christian. That's what you need to do right now. In moments where you feel so overwhelmed, with a sense of helplessness, with a sense of lack of control. You have to make the active and conscious decision to say, God is my shepherd. He is leading me. This is not a permanent situation. This is not a pervasive situation. This is not something that is always going to be. No, my God is leading me. Even though this valley is dark, even though it's filled with such shadowy crises, my God is leading me out and he will be faithful. Now, I know many of you are hearing this and you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, that's easier said than done. That's so easier said than done. How can I really develop that kind of faith muscle and really choose to believe that? 
hey, you know what? I understand. I know that it's not easy. And you're probably wondering what I have wondered many times this past week. And that is, is there anything that we can look to to our faith? Is there anything that we can look to in the scriptures that can inspire us, that can motivate us, and that can compel us to make that conscious decision to trust God? Well, I think there is. And to tell you what that is, I go to my final point, the fear we will never face. You know, just by a surface reading of this psalm, one thing that's very obvious to all of us is that for David, as far as he is concerned, the only solution to our fears is God. Let me say that again. As far as David is concerned, there is only one solution and one solution only to our fears, and that is God himself. And by implication, that means all the fears that we go through in life, the fear of being alone, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of suffering, the fear of death, all of it has at its core, God. God is the central core element behind all those fears. And I know you hear that and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure I agree. Because I've been struggling with a lot of fear this past week and it just seems like God has no bearing whatsoever in any of it. Well, I'm not so sure I agree with that, Christian. And let me explain with this illustration. Um, There's a documentary that came out a few years ago that quite honestly I think is the most heartbreaking documentary ever made. It's one where it documents little girls who were sold into sex trafficking as young as five years old in India. And some of these uh, stories that they profile in this documentary is so heartbreaking, but what is so encouraging is that many of the girls who were filmed were released they were set free and one of the questions that the filmmaker asked all these girls was this how would you describe the day that you were sold into slavery and you know how they described it they called it the day my god died the day my god died now i find that so fascinating that these girls who are so young have not experienced anything can so clearly and pointedly describe the most dangerous, the most darkest, the most terrifying thing as the day that their God died. Out of all the ways that they could have described that experience, they felt that was the most suitable, that was the most fitting to describe, as if that explained it all. And I think about that, and I think that tells me something that's very profound that I want to share with you, and it's this. The most terrifying experience that you could ever go through in life, the most trauma that you could ever endure, is coming to the conclusion that your God is dead. Which is basically another way of saying that your God isn't real. Either his love isn't real, his power isn't real, or maybe he himself isn't real. And if that is case, do you know what that will do to you? It will magnify whatever fear that paralyzes you now to insurmountable proportions. For example, if you're one of those people who chronically worries about being alone and never finding someone, how do you think not believing in the existence of God will do to you in that fear? Do you think it will be alleviated or do you think it will be worse? How could a person like that have any hope if they cannot believe that one day, even though on earth they never met their spouse, they're going to return to the person who is their ultimate spouse, their ultimate lover that scripture describes of God in so many passages. Or how about a person who is constantly terrified of losing their loved ones to sickness and eventually to death? 
What does that fear do to you if you believe there is no God who one day can restore that person into your life and overcome death because He overcame death itself? You see, it's only when there is a God, and not just any God, but a God who is loving, who is personal, who is forgiving, and who is eternal. That is a God who can never cease to exist, who can never die, that you can overcome any fear that this world has to throw at you. And you know what? Jesus tells us that is who he is. That's the God that he is. Consider how he describes himself to his disciples and therefore to all of us who follow him today. John chapter 10. We're starting in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life and only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Here Jesus uses the identical symbolic imagery of a shepherd, but he applies it to himself the way David applies it to God. And of course that makes sense because Jesus is God. And yet Jesus says something very different that David never says about his shepherd. And that is, he, the good shepherd, lays down his life. That is, he dies. But here's the thing. He does not stay dead. Even though the world tried to do it by killing him on the cross, as if the world was trying to convince us that our God is dead. No, Jesus rose again from the dead. And by doing so, Jesus is trying to tell something you and me today, Christian, that we can never forget. And you know what it is? It's simply this. Jesus is telling us that even though the shadows of death can conquer you, they cannot conquer him. Again, even though the shadows of death can conquer you, they can never conquer him. So the hope is therefore this. Even though you could lose the dream of someday being married, even though you could lose your loved one to sickness, to death. The good news of the gospel is you can never lose Jesus. And here's the thing. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You have everyone. Because one of the promises of the gospel is is that by Jesus rising again from the dead, he can reverse and he can restore all that was shattered, all that was separated from you, all that was spoiled by sin. There is no permanent sabotage, no permanent shame, no permanent separation that can be done to you that Jesus cannot restore. You know why? Because Jesus went through the ultimate sabotage. He went through the ultimate shame. He went through the ultimate separation. He went through death and he conquered it. If he's able to conquer that, don't you think he can also conquer what is scaring you right now? Isn't that why Paul says these words to encourage us in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31? Hear what Paul says. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died... More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God, and it is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, when you know that you never have to face the fear of your God dying, you know that you will always have hope. Hope that cannot be diminished. Hope that cannot be eviscerated by sickness or illness or a virus or any other tragedy, any sort of loss. Because your God refuses to die. And because of that, your hope should never die as well. My charge to you, NCF, especially now in this time of global fear, would you shine forth the hope that you have and therefore the fearlessness that should come out of it because you will never have the greatest fear of all. Your God will never die on you, but he will rise again and he has arisen again. And the hope of the resurrection is now yours. Would you now go forth and live it out for the good of this world? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would truly help us to remember today's message, especially now during this turbulent time where it is so easy for us to succumb to fear and worry and anxiety. Lord, you are good and you are powerful. And that is beautifully displayed in the glorious resurrection that you achieved after dying for our sins on the cross. Lord, let us never forget that you have overcome the ultimate sabotage, the ultimate shame, the ultimate separation, so that any shadows of these things happening in our life cannot have any damage to us, be as, but instead be as harmless as any other shadow that overcomes us. Help us to remember this truth, especially now, so that we can truly be a witness and a blessing to this world. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.